The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. I'm John. I am also, like Mike, I am also one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church. And I'm glad you're here today. Um, We've been doing this series for the past month now called The Wife of Christ, talking about the church um, in in the city in the community of Ephesus in the New Testament. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it um, to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, where we're going to be reading the first 10 verses from that. Um, we call this series The Wife of Christ because throughout, throughout the Bible, we see God's people referred to in that intimate relationship as the bride of Christ, as his wife. And what we can learn from the church at Ephesus is probably, uh, we can learn more from the church of Ephesus than any other church because there are so many things going on and so much history in the New Testament about Ephesians, about the church at Ephesus. Um, I'm going to read the first three verses. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. That's a nice entry point, isn't it? We've heard for the last couple weeks, we started, um, we talked about the spiritual blessings that are available to Christians. Talked about the things that are available only to people who are united with Christ. And, and over the past couple weeks, I've, I've said this a few times, Paul doesn't exactly write this letter in the way that I think he should. Um, I think he's really doing a lot of things where he's hinting at what's going to come. And that very first chapter where he talks about these spiritual blessings, he's kind of setting up the, his, his hearers for what they really need to hear. So the first thing he says is, you have, you have spiritual blessings. You have things that are available to you as someone who is united with Christ. And what we talked about last week was Paul's prayer for that church. So you, you realize what you have, you know what you have access to, and you haven't accepted it. So what I'm going to do church at Ephesus, is I'm going to pray that you will accept the things that God has given you. And then he makes this strange turn. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like anyone else. One of the things I want to encourage you to do is if you have questions about what we talk about today, you can send a text um, to 307-316-2023, and we talk about that every Tuesday on our church Facebook page. This is a tough text for us to deal with. Paul's saying some really really bold things. And at some point in, in the several years that I've had this Bible, the, the thing that I wrote, I don't know if you write in your Bible, you have permission to write in your Bible. Um, you're welcome. Um, I wrote in my Bible above chapter two, I wrote, do you even know you're dead? This is a, this is a powerful statement that Paul's making. Because for some of us, 
we don't know that we're dead. We don't think we're dead. This is, this is kind of an offensive text. What exactly is, is Paul saying? Well, I recently discovered the story of a, of a man named Walter Dixon. I want to tell you a little bit about him. Walter served in the Army's 38th Infantry Division during the Korean War. One day he was about half a mile away from his post when he saw five other people in his unit take incoming artillery fire. One of these men had both of his legs broken, so Walter took off his coat and he wrapped his coat around the man's legs and he went to get help. After he left these five men, another incoming artillery shell hit the exact same spot. All the men were killed. And what they found was Walter's coat and multiple body parts. So Walter was declared dead. Only Walter wasn't dead. He had been captured. On May 5th, 1951, Walter Dixon was declared dead. For the next two and a half years, Dixon lived in a North Korean prisoner of war camp. He would escape five times, each time being recaptured. His wife would receive a letter from President Truman along with a death certificate. She would remarry and have a child. When the war ended, the Red Cross arranged for a prisoner swap and Dixon returned home. He actually married the woman who had written his obituary in the local paper and would have three children with her. He remained in the army for 24 years, was awarded seven Purple Hearts, and retired in 1970. I think Walter Dixon is a perfect example of the first three verses in this text. He's dead, but he's alive. Or he's alive, but he's legally dead. And I want you to listen again to these verses. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. You were dead, Paul is telling the church. People who are now believers, he is reminding them of who they were, of what they were, before they became united with Christ. And it's a pretty brutal reality. You were dead. And this perfectly describes who every one of us were before we were united with Christ. And even more boldly, if we just take it one further, for those of us in the room who are not united with Christ, Paul is, Paul is giving a very specific diagnosis of your life. What he's telling you is you're spiritually dead. This is one of those times where I wonder if Paul could be more offensive in what he's trying to say to us. But I will confess... And my guess is that some of you would confess this. There are still times where I feel like I am spiritually dead. I'm not convinced that I am alive. And in fact, I had one of these moments um, earlier this week. And I'm not really sure where, where it came from or why it happened. We had just finished our, our Tuesday Q&A. 
on Tuesday, and I was walking out to the parking lot because I was going to go have lunch with, um, with Dustin Jones. And out of nowhere, this, this emptiness just hit my stomach. This abject, honestly, it was, it was hopelessness. I have no idea where it came from. And what I felt, truthfully, is, is the reality of what I felt a long time ago when I did not know Christ. What I felt constantly before I knew Christ. Where I was constantly pursuing things to find satisfaction in things, in relationships, and in money, and in my own self-righteousness. Where that constantly took me to was a depth of hopelessness. And my hunch is is that there are people in this room that can identify with that. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, you never seem to get ahead. Life just seems hopeless. And as I was processing this, I, I had lunch with Dustin and I just talked about it. And to this day, I still don't know where that came from except to say this. I'm learning to I'm learning to accept those moments as a reminder of what my life would really be like if I were not united with Christ. In, in that three hours, because that's really what it was for me, in that three-hour space, I was absolutely reminded of what my life was like before Christ. And I was so appreciative of it. I, I just want to tell you, I was so thankful that every once in a while, God in his mercy and his grace will, will have kindness on me and remind me of what, what's really going on in the spiritual lives of the people that, we, that I serve and minister to every single week. So I want you to hear, if you wrestle with this and you struggle with this, you are not alone. As a Christian, when you feel that pit in your stomach of hopelessness, I want you to know that you're not alone. And I also want you to, to stop and ask the next thing. So why am I feeling this way? What, what exactly is it that's going on? Because there are times where I still, I still feel what Paul is very accurately describing in this text for me. Paul says we're dead because of our disobedience and our sins. And that's not typically the way we think about what's wrong with the world. Typically, the way we think about what's wrong with the world is what's wrong out there. What we think about what's wrong with the world is what other people do. We rarely look inwardly. And when we do look inwardly, what we frequently do is we dismiss those thoughts, right? Because there's always someone who is worse than us. That's, how, that's what we comfort ourselves with, is there's always someone who is worse than us. Last week we were reading this text in our elders meeting, and Dave Robinson said, Dead is dead. Whether your sin is the worst ones that we can think of, because we all categorize sin, even though the Bible tells us not to do that, we all categorize sin. We all decide that some sins are worse than other sins. 
Whether your sin is the worst ones that we can think of or it's pride and self-righteousness, we are dead. That's the the picture that Paul really wants to land here. That's the thing that Paul wants to communicate to those of us who are united with Christ to remember who we were and for those of us who are not united with Christ to know who we are. So if you're wondering, if you're not united with Christ and you're wondering why life feels helpless and hopeless, this is why. If you're wondering why you can't ever get ahead, this is why. This is, this is the spiritual truth. This is the, honestly, if you're here today and you're not united with Christ, I'm actually giving you a gift right now. Because I'm, because I'm naming for you. Paul is naming for you what your problem is. Paul is naming for us what the issue is. And in our natural state, even though we're physically alive, we are spiritually dead. And this is why I love Walter Dixon's story. Because it's such a perfect image of what it's like for someone to be physically alive and to the rest of the world completely dead. Paul continues in his offensive words. He says that spiritually dead people serve and obey the devil. The devil's at work in the hearts of those who are not united with Christ. So here's what Paul's saying. If we want to categorize people as human beings, if, if we want to do that, and we shouldn't do that, but if we wanted to categorize people, what Paul is saying is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are spiritually alive, and that comes in Christ. And there are people who are spiritually dead. Last week in small group, I was, I was trying to prepare our small group for, for what this day was going to look like and what this message was going to look like. And Jess Stoffer, um, I loved it, she said, Yay, I can't wait! But we have to understand that, that this, is, this is what true spiritual darkness looks like for us. This is a pretty bleak outlook on mankind. And it's one that many of us in the room reject. Richard Phillips has this to say. We know someone is dead because they no longer respond to stimuli. We talk, but there's no answer. We touch, but there's no movement. This is the way people who are spiritually dead respond to God and his word. They have no comprehension, even when the Bible is taught. When the gospel offer is made, they do not respond. And I think this explains why, why some people, why some of us, why, why I did this before I knew who Jesus was. It explains why, why people can sit in a room every single week and hear what God is calling them to and not have the slightest interest into what he is asking of them. How else would you explain that? The only way for us to grasp what Paul is saying is to hear it straight out. I want you to imagine if we went to a leper colony we probably find that people in the leper colony don't want to talk too much about leprosy. 
So I can understand why, as spiritually dead people, like this is not what we want to hear. But what if we went to the leprosy colony with a cure? Should we not talk about these realities? What Paul is telling the church at Ephesus and what Paul is telling us is that the great problem of the world is sin. And we simply have no solution on our own. God's work of redemption begins with the recognition of our sinfulness. I remember one time I was visiting with a student who was, who was in the process of rejecting Christianity. She was in the process of rejecting her faith. And what she told me was, she, she would point to texts like this, and maybe this is what some of us are doing right now. She would point to a text like this, and she would say, well, God says I'm dead. God says I'm an abomination. I'm subject to his wrath, so that's what I'm going to be. And for those of us who, who, who kind of live in that space of I know how, how bad I am, the Bible just confirmed that. But here's the thing. When we when we come across things like this in the Bible, what we ought to do is scratch the surface a little bit. What we ought to do is dig a little deeper. Because here's the thing that Paul wants us to realize, know, and accept. We can't save ourselves because we are dead in sin. We don't want to save ourselves. Prior to my Knowing all of this, prior to my becoming aware of who Jesus was and what he did for me, I loved my sin. As much hopelessness as it caused me, as many problems as it caused me, I loved my sin. I was comfortable in my sin. I didn't want to be saved. And the last thing that Paul wants us to realize, know, and accept is we're going to be held accountable for this. So let's scratch the surface. Let's read. I'll read to you. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. As shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. Our God reigns. I would love for you to stand and sing Our God Reigns.
Don't miss the power of those first two words in verse 4. But God. See, we were subject to God's anger because of our sin. Because of our deadness, because of our lostness, we were justifiably subject to God's anger. But God means something else. But God means that God is sovereign and he's holy and he's just and he's filled with mercy and love. But God means that we do not get what we deserve. What we receive from God is the opposite of what we deserve. But God means instead of bringing wrath upon us, instead of bringing wrath upon you, so if you're living in that space of, yep, I'm a failure, I'm dead, John just confirmed it. Instead of wrath, he's giving you mercy. And if you were to read throughout the entire Old Testament, you would not find a mean, spiteful, arrogant, or vengeful God. You would find a God of justice, of mercy, of righteousness, of love. And we were dead in our sins. And instead of giving us what we deserved, he loved us and offered us life through Jesus. That's what but God means. And that offers for everyone. That life comes from Jesus. But God means that we have a new life and a new place now. And, and the contrasts in these, in these ten verses are, couldn't be more stark, couldn't be more opposite. What Paul first says is those who are united, those who are not united with Christ are in bondage to the world. If that's you, that, that's, that's why you can't defeat that one thing that has plagued you your entire life. That's why you can't defeat it. Again, Paul is, Paul is naming our problems here. If you are in bondage to that one thing that you just can't seem to beat and you're not united with Christ, this is why. But those who are in Christ have been raised into not just a new life, but into a heavenly citizenship. Do you see the difference between those two things? On one hand, you're in bondage to Christ or in bondage to the world. And in the other hand, you have freedom in Christ. Those who are not united with Christ are by their nature children of wrath. But those who are united in Christ are seated with him. Do you see the difference there? Deserving of wrath on one side and seated with Christ on the other. And I know before I was united with Christ, I was absolutely consumed by feelings of insignificance. I wondered who I was, I wondered whose I was, and I constantly sought out significance in things that were only going to let me down. I sought significance in success at work. I sought significance in having a a fantastic family. I sought significance in having money. I thought significance in being right. 
But because I was, because I was dead, is what Paul is saying. Because, because this is an accurate diagnosis. I wasn't finding significance. And because I compared myself to the failures of others, remember, I'm always better than everyone else. Right? We, all, we all know what that looks like. I did find significance, but it was always a shifting significance. I tried to find meaning and purpose in the affirmation of others. I cared about what others thought about me so much that I allowed them to shape my identity. But the reality was I was dead. And now what, what we're reading in this text is my identity and your identity can be found somewhere else. It can be found in something else. It can be given to you by God. And I think this is the thing that Paul is wanting us to realize, to know, and accept, is that in Christ, we have immeasurable value. We have an identity that the world cannot give us. And I, I so wish that those of you that are struggling with your identity— and I don't mean that in the 2019 sense. I so wish that those of you who are struggling with who you really are, I wish that you would know firmly and confidently who you are in Christ. The world is constantly trying to tell you who you are, and in some really crazy ways. On Facebook recently, I've seen a lot of posts. It's like, the shape of your foot tells you who you really are. Have you seen that one? How many of you have taken that little test? And we laugh because that sounds ridiculous. But is it any more ridiculous than defining your identity by how much money's in your bank account? Is it any more ridiculous? by defining your identity by the kind of car you drive? I don't think it is. In Christ, in Christ, we have the only identity that we ever need. The only one we need. It's alive. It's raised from this death. It is seated next to him. And I long for the day when we as Christians will know confidently who we are in Christ. Confidently, boldly. I long for the day when we will cast away our strivings. We will cast away our empty pursuits. And accept, accept the mercy and the grace that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Paul is giving us. This is what real significance looks like. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's telling us what real significance looks like. And some of us don't feel worthy of this significance. We don't feel like we could ever measure up to it. And that's the secret of these first three verses. You're not worthy. I 
am not worthy. And what God does is he, he specializes in taking things that are completely unworthy, things that are spiritually dead, spiritually without hope, and he specializes in raising them from the dead and giving them a measurable worth and a measurable value. And then he points to us as his examples, not of how pathetic we were or how bad we are, but he points to us as examples of how great he is. Because God can make dead things, dead people come back to life. God says, I did that. Look at, who, look at who this person was. He was dead. She was dead. And look at what I did. We are examples. And see, long before Paul wrote this letter, before he met Christ, he was a self-righteous, religious know-it-all. He was so focused on right theology. He was so focused on his own self-righteousness that he chased down and arrested, and tortured, and had Christians murdered. And then he met Christ who gave him life. And Paul points to that guy as the example of what is available to every single one of us. But God means that God did the work. And this is why understanding who we are without him and understanding who he is is so important. Because what we want to do is we want to, we want to think of ourselves as just slightly flawed, as slightly broken. I'm not dead. I'm just, I just have some problems in my life. And when I have some problems in my life, all I have to do is work really, really hard to fix them. Right? If debt is a real problem in my life, all I have to do is work really, really hard to get out of debt. And what happens is we've convinced ourselves that with just a little bit more work, we will be the person that we really want to be. And I think that's why some of us don't turn to Jesus. Because we want to do it our way. But that's the importance of but God, because he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Some of us have convinced ourselves that unless and until we fix ourselves, God can't love us. But that's not what this says. This is the glorious good news of but God. Salvation is not a blue ribbon for the most improved human. Salvation is for people who are dead and they know it. Taking someone who is dead and breathing life into them. And here's another contrast from dead to masterpiece. From dead to masterpiece. And as a masterpiece, we are created to do something. We are not created to simply sit in a museum and have people walk in and look at us and say, oh, wow, God really did an amazing work in their life. How beautiful they are. Because I remember where that guy 20 years ago, he did all these things. And look how wonderful and fantastic he is today. That is not why we were made into a masterpiece. 
We were made into a masterpiece so that we could do something significant in the lives of other people. So that we could bring this same freedom to them. This is why he brought us back to life. Was to give us life so that we might point to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for taking dead people and making them alive. It's my, it's my hope and my prayer for those of us who, who are not yet united with you that we would recognize our spiritual state of deadness. That we would recognize that we're alienated from you. That we would recognize that we, we're facing a judgment by a perfect God who is going to pronounce us guilty. And I pray that, that they would recognize that there's a way out of all of this, and it's found in those two words, but God. I pray that those words would penetrate deeply into the hearts, minds, and souls of those who don't know you. I pray, God, that, that people who don't know you would be, would be opposed by you at every turn so that, so that they will be confronted of the reality of their deadness. And that they would not sink into despair, that they would not sink into lostness, but they would hear this. That they would submit, that they would confess, that they would look to you for their salvation, because it is not coming from any other person or any other place. I pray that they would submit to you. And for those of us who are spiritually alive, God, will, will you help the words but God penetrate deeply into our hearts, minds, and souls as well? God, help us to live. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're citizens of heaven. God, help us to live for things that matter to find our identity in you. God, for those of us that are united with Christ, we are not far from him. We're seated right next to him. God, help us to give him our heart and help us to take his heart. Help us to participate in his glory and be the light others need. Help us to look upon those who are spiritually dead, not with eyes of condemnation, but with mercy and with kindness. God, help us to live. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago at our church picnic, I was standing, um, was standing behind Katrina, and she turned to me and says, hey, I need to come and talk to you this week. I said, okay, what, what are we, we going to talk about? And she said, well, I want to get baptized. And I was like, well, that's awesome. So she came into my office, and we, we talked for a few minutes, and Katrina, I don't know where you're sitting, but you can start, okay, come on up. Um, and she just started talking, and sometimes, actually what she said was, I want to talk about baptism, which can be a little more cryptic than I want to get baptized, right? So I, I was a little unsure of what that conversation was going to look like, um, 
So I, I had uh, printed off a whole bunch of things because even I need to remember where Bible verses are. Okay, I haven't mastered that yet. So I printed off a whole bunch of things and I was, I was ready for this, for this deep conversation. And I said, well, so what do you want to talk about? And she said, well, I want to be baptized. And I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? And she told me. And I was like, okay, let's, let's schedule that. Let's talk about what that would look like. So I'm going to let her share with you our church body, why Katrina would like to be baptized. Um, and then we are going to baptize Katrina this morning. So this is Katrina, Miranda's sister, Janice Casey's, um, one of Janice Casey's daughters. Um, some Miranda, uh, see, there it was, Miranda. Katrina, why would you, why do you want to be baptized? I grew up in Missouri and Wisconsin City churches. I never felt whole, complete, or like I fit in, um, very right and wrong. So growing up, I felt that way. And then about my late teens, early 20s, I started realizing I can be rebaptized. But I was told, no, you were baptized. Mom went to First Christian Church in Norfolk. And I had talked to Pastor Dick there, and he said, no, you're absolutely right. You have the right to choose. But that wasn't the church for me. When Mom moved, Miranda was already here. I would come to church and visit, and this was home. So when I made my final decision to be here and live here, I knew without a doubt and today, I want to deepen my faith, accept the Holy Spirit farther, and belong. So here at Westway Christian Church, um, what we do is when someone wants to be baptized, we have a little bit of a conversation with them because we want them to kind of know what's going on know what, and hear what the Spirit is doing in their life, hear what God is doing in their life. And then on, um, when we do that, we simply ask, ask a, the simplest question in the world um, for them to just repeat after us to affirm that they believe what um, Scripture teaches um, about the personhood of Jesus. So you can just repeat after me. I believe, I believe, I believe. that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. Perfect. Okay, so we are going to go back and get ready for baptism. Um, so we'll see you in a few minutes on the screen. <laughs>